Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will influence politics in the future. This week's episode is a little bit different and I'm going to take a moment to abuse my editorial position and tell you why. Frankly, it's a bit more political than usual. It's also about a slightly different issue and that is the situation uh, for people working on very low wages or zero hours contracts in Britain. And I've taken the choice to have the author James Bloodworth on the show because in recent episodes we've talked a lot about really big picture issues and I know that's what a lot of you are probably really enjoying. It's about the quality of our democracy, it's about how to protect ourselves from the threat of Donald Trump um, or the all omnipotent power of technology companies as they grow and grow and grow. But it's important to remember that big organisations have an impact on people's lives beyond just public discourse and James's book offers a snapshot of life in low-wage Britain today um, that has some stories in it that I thought were really powerful and compelling and a reminder of some of the issues that we need to work on away from worrying about the impact of Facebook and Google on the conversations that we have uh, on Twitter or elsewhere. So uh, this week's episode is unashamedly a bit more political. It's not necessarily that I agree with everything that's in it. In fact, I want to uh, always have a diversity of voices and opinions on the podcast and so if you particularly enjoy this let me know but equally if there's somebody uh, holding any political views that you think are relevant to the conversations we're having here on government versus the robots then please do get in touch and suggest that i have them on the show because um, i'm all ears to people with opinions from right across the political spectrum so with that out of the way from me i'm going to cut to the interview with james uh, and i hope you enjoy it if not in coming weeks we've got the facts checking charity full fact and we'll be finally finding out a bit more about the potential of bitcoin and cryptocurrency i am james bloodworth i'm a freelance journalist and the author of hired six months undercover in low-wage britain do you want to kind of just uh, for everybody's benefit talk me through where the idea for the book first came from and a little bit about what's in there yeah, so I, I suppose there's there's three sides to it, really. On the one hand, um, I, I had always admired those authors like, most famously, Orwell, um, Jack London, um, and even in more recent times, people like Barbara Ehrenreich in the United States, Polly Toynbee um, in this country, who'd done, uh, had kind of embedded themselves in a world of work um, that wasn't necessarily their, their natural setting, and as a piece of kind of sociology to, to, to find out what was, um, what was really going on there. Um, I always liked that that style of journalism. I always found that kind of what Orwell all would have called belly-to-earth reporting, found that useful in a way that either polemical pieces or academic pieces, I, I felt they lacked something, the human side of it, as it were. Also, 
I, I, I was didn't go to university until I was 23. I, I grew up in a kind of working class, lower middle class background. Um, and I, I worked in warehouses, worked in, did laboring jobs, worked in a petrol station, uh, worked in a yogurt factory for a while. I did, did those kinds of jobs kind of ten, a decade, just over a decade ago. And so for me, it was a case of going back um, with the kind of, without sounding too kind of portentous, but with the literary ability that I didn't have when I worked worked in those places. So I couldn't have written written uh, a book back then. So it was a case of, of kind of going back to that world and drawing out of it some of the lessons that I'd learned along the way and, and lessons based on some of the things I saw there. And also the final point was, the final thing I would say really is, if we go back to like the end of 2015, when, that was when the idea really came to fruition, and I and I started to to think about uh, doing the book. Uh, there was there was a lot in the news about how there was a, there were a record number of people in work, how the economy was well on the road to to recovery after a, after a long recession, serious re- recession. But if you looked behind the headlines, there was a massive rise in the number of people on zero hours contracts. For example, there was a big rise in in precarity, um, if you like. I thought it would be a good time to go and explore the world of work as it's actually lived behind the headlines, if you like. So for a lot of people who listen to this podcast, probably the kind of jobs they did when they were 16, 17, if they're anything like me, I think I can put fish and chip shop, uh, madhouse clothing store, which probably says a bit too much about my teenage fashion tastes. Friends are fond of telling me, I think I spent two days once just holding the queue here sign at the next sale. Um, So there's a few of those, but I think for a lot of people, they're the kind of, the jobs you do when you're younger and then you don't really think about them that much further on because they're the low-wage jobs probably done to fund the kind of route towards university um so i found your reflections on going back to sort of some of the jobs further down the line really quite interesting um but i wanted to ask you who the most memorable characters were that you encountered on the road yeah sure i mean some of them one of the most memorable characters for example wasn't someone who I met in in one of the jobs. So there's a guy called Gary I met in the second. Ch- I wrote about in the second chapter when I was in Blackpool, and it was someone who he was he was homeless, and I I kind of sat up with him um, for a night just like on the streets of of Blackpool, and he was really interesting character because he'd been someone who'd lived fairly recently what we'd call a conventional or a respectable life. So he'd had a job, he'd been married with a kid, and then well, bad luck had kind of um, conspired to to bring him down to where he was living a short while later living on the street and he'd been diagnosed with cancer he couldn't work because of this got depressed tried to kill himself um and then was in hospital for a long period because he'd kind of broken his legs and stuff and while he was in hospital he hadn't uh, submitted the correct form to receive benefits when he came out of hospital so there was like a three-week wait where a three-week window before he received personal independence payment where he was living on the street um all the while undergoing treatment for for cancer uh, you know, twice a day visits to the pharmacy to pick up things like cocodamol, uh, paracetamol, and you're have to, having to go through that while begging for cups of tea and scraps of, of goodwill from, from passers-by. And it was bad luck, really. It kind of What that conveyed to me was that that kind of thing can, can really happen to anyone. And did you come across any sort of bad eggs in the workforce, if you like? I mean, I came across quite a lot of, at Amazon particularly, uh, there were a lot of line managers who were the small degree of authority which they did have uh, had seemingly gone to their heads so they would seem to get a kick out of really kind of tearing into to their underlings if you like to to those of us on the on the shop floor um that was quite depressing but then again the the, the more you learned about the company those people themselves were also uh, under serious pressure from from those one la- layer above them as well 
And so, for anybody's benefit who hasn't read the book yet, just run us through which jobs and, and where you worked in this in the six months. Sure. So I, I worked first of all in a town called Rugeley, which is in in Staffordshire. It's near near Cannock Chase. I worked there in an Amazon warehouse for an agency called Transline. I worked there for for around about a month. Uh, from there, I travelled up to Blackpool, where I worked as a. I was in Blackpool for six weeks, and I worked there as a social carer for for a home care, like home visits to elderly and disabled people. Then I went down to the South Wales Valleys and worked in a call centre there. Um, I was there for again about five six weeks, and then I travelled back to London, where I worked as a taxi driver for for just around about three months for Uber in you know in the gig economy as it's called. So I am. Um for my sins, I'm a Notts County supporter in the football world, which means that I do travel to kind of uh, small town areas of the UK more frequently than perhaps others might. And I'm always struck by a kind of well, what's going on here feeling when I go to kind of fairly clapped out high streets these days and think well, it might be interesting to get under the skin of the kind of change that's going on in these towns. And you've actually done that. So I want to ask you what what you expected to find and then what really surprised you about what you found? So, I mean, the book started out more as a look at the economic side of, of things. But I didn't have any, any specific idea of which employers I was going to work for, but it was a look at what it's like to you know, survive on that, that sort of money, whether that's how, how easy or how hard that is. But it also, the book morphed into a book about the places I was living because it became clear very quickly that when you were working for a company like Amazon, which was the biggest employer in the town of Rugeley, um, it became important to look at the context within which that factory was was there. So the biggest employer in the town. Okay, so when did it arrive? It arrived in 2011. Uh, if you if you go back, say 30 years, what were the biggest employers in the town, and what was the difference between the sorts of terms and conditions they offered, and what was there today? Um, so in the past, in Rugeley, you had the Lee Hall Colliery, which again, coal mining. You don't you, you have to be careful not to romanticise that kind of work. But it paid relatively good wages. It had a strong trade union. There was a sense of progression year upon year um, in terms of things like pay grades. Um, there was two. There were two power stations. There were companies providing machinery for both the pit and and the power stations. There were Thorny MI. Um, there were Armitage Shanks. Employers like that. So skilled jobs, uh, working class jobs, but but relatively decent jobs. And the biggest employers when I arrived in 2016 were Amazon first of all, and then Tesco and Argos. And for uh, like entry level jobs, if you like. Um, for someone say say leaving school at 16 it was zero, zero hours contracts minimum wage uh, jobs and then realizing that I, f- I felt anyway that I began to see why there was so much resentment in uh, in towns like Rugeley there were lots of people who were it was before the EU referendum for example lots of people who'd voted Labour their whole life uh, typically who were adamant that they were going to vote leave uh, in the referendum uh, they were kind of fed up with Westminster, lots of people I spoke to, or just completely apathetic. And people would, would frequently say, like, realistically, this town has, has got worse in many ways over the, over recent decades. How are you going to get a mortgage on a nine-month contract at Amazon where you can be sacked after, uh, for taking six days off sick? Um, things like that. It's so comp- capricious. There are no none of the institutional affiliations uh, which came with some of the old jobs, like the trade unions, the, the social clubs are closing down. There are fewer opportunities to, to learn a skill, whether an apprenticeship or whatever. And if you didn't, the fact that more of your contemporaries went to university, you know, in the, if you went back 30, 40 years, it's only a small percentage of people, like a, a supposed cognitive elite, went to university. But the fact that more of your contemporaries went to university and you were left in, in a town like Rugeley, for some people it compounded the kind of sense of, of failure 
um, that you'd been kind of, I think left behind is, a, is an appropriate term for, for some of those people. What assumptions do you think people might make that very quickly fade away after spending a couple of weeks in somewhere like Rugeley or off, off, the, uh, off the promenade in Blackpool? I think with with some of these jobs, I think the assumption is on the part of those of us who have who are graduates, for example, that people are just doing those jobs as a kind of stopgap. And well, you know, if you if you work at Amazon, you just do it like as a summer job. It's that that assumption. Whereas if it's the biggest employer in town and you intend to to live in the town where you grew up, you you say you're you're you've got children or you're raising a young family there. There's not much opportunity for you. You said we say as politics increasingly over over recent decades, all parties have said that talk incessantly about social mobility so we have to put down more ladders for the the quote-unquote bright but poor kids to climb up so this is cognitive ability is valued above everything else but for those people who um in the past there would have been the opportunities there for them to to learn a skill or something um that's been been really really devalued and i think we forget the human side of those things and i think for me personally going out and and living with those people those people uh, who work in places like amazon or living with people who, who do jobs like uh, social care uh, you you re-engage with the human side of it that simply because someone is not part of the cognitive elite isn't someone who's necessarily academic they're no less entitled to to dignity and self-respect in their life than than anyone else they have just as rich an inner, inner life as any uh, university professor or whatever, and there's, you know, there are some really powerful, um, quite evocative stories of some of the people that you meet on your journey, all of which add up to a lot of thinking about the fact that it must be, I'll have to put the e on the podcast, but really fucking hard to kind of keep going in those circumstances in a job which is thankless, difficult. You're underpaid for what you're doing. I mean having 15 minutes to carry out a care home visit. I remember once watching a video of like what you can achieve in a 15-minute care home visit if you're not skilled and experienced at doing it, and it's not a hell of a lot. No. Um, and that's why I really wanted to do this interview with you and to give people a chance to think about the contents of the book. But this is usually a fairly optimistic podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just want to check whether there was anything that you found that kind of gives you cause for optimism or positivity as well as kind of what was a fairly resounding um, negative feedback on the state of low paid work in the UK? I think one of the most positive things has come um, in the kind of reaction to the book. Um, So from from across the political spectrum, because I tried to make the book so it wasn't like a lecture. So it was, I mean, there's a moral, there are moral kind of overtones to it throughout, but it's not, it's not a manifesto. It's not a kind of I'm not kind of hectoring someone that you need to you need to think this or whatever but the response from lots of people have, have messaged me approached me reached out um, and, and said they really want things to be done about this uh, they just don't know what the what, what the solutions are but there are lots and lots of people who were kind of vaguely aware of it who really do want action to be taken on this um, and it's easy to, to get quite cynical and say well you know no one's gonna gonna change when uh, it's so easy to order things over Amazon, or you can just you can just hail an Uber. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think there have been great successes with things like fair trade. I don't think people want to buy stuff when they really know. When, to put it bluntly, you've kind of rubbed their face in the consequences of of that supply chain, uh, what goes on there. I think people broadly are, are ethical and do tend to um, want action to be taken on that. There's a few people who say, you know, who cares about those people, but they're working in the warehouse or the care workers, but. I think there's increasingly there's a there's a kind of groundswell of opinion that says this stuff does matter, if not just for the kind of the moral reason that we shouldn't treat people as a society like that. I think 
there's understanding around some of the political backlash we've seen against uh, the, the so-called establishment in recent years is partly related to this neglect of the working class and, and this idea of kind of meritocracy on steroids where if you do well, if you're academic, you do well, you should enjoy all the rewards on offer and you don't really have to, to worry about what goes on further down the chain. I think we're, we're kind of, things are changing slightly because you see the dangers of when you don't uh, do anything about that with the rise of characters like Donald Trump and etc. It's interesting that you mentioned fair trade. We had um, a lady called Rachel Caldercott, who's the chief executive of an organisation called Dot Everyone, on an episode a few weeks ago, which for anybody listening who wants to have a listen, it was called Are You Good at the Internet? And she was saying, you know, we could have a fair trade, Mark, because a lot of people who use the internet are kind of like ice skaters on the surface of an ice rink, and actually you've got absolutely no idea what's underneath the rink. Um, and one of the things that your book does is start to give us a picture about what is underneath the rink. And I'm going to move on to talk a little bit about some of the companies involved that you've worked with and kind of come on to turf which is probably a little bit more familiar to regular listeners to government versus the robots and something that something else that rachel said actually was that she felt that maybe in time uh when new hires go into big tech or big companies that were born out of silicon valley you might find that their internal culture starts to change because people are more the people who are hired are more determined to try and do something to change it but I don't get the impression, at least from your experience, and it's important to remember that not every tech company is the same and it's no, not a homogenous experience, but what was your sense of the kind of internal culture somewhere like Amazon? And what was your sense of any coherent culture for drivers somewhere like Uber? I mean, with Amazon, it was the culture was, was completely focused on productivity. So it was, it was kind of a throwback to, to Taylorist theories of um, almost like managerial Leninism. So it's about kind of imposing this model on, on the workforce where you squeeze as much productivity out, like uh, almost a, a vanguard of people like Jeff, Jeff Bezos and the kind of elite in Amazon uh, squeeze out as much productivity from, from the typical uh, worker as they can at the expense of everything else. So at the expense of things like their physical and emotional well-being. So there was a report out on Monday in The Times um, about I think it's 600 ambulances called out to Amazon warehouses in I can't remember how, how long that's in a year or something um, when I was there there were there were things kind of you were disciplined if you were off, if you took a day off sick so if you took a day off sick regardless of whether you phoned in uh, beforehand because you had to phone in like an hour beforehand regardless of whether you got a doctor's note um, you'd receive a disciplinary and if you rece- received six of those so if you took six a week and a day off let's say you had the flu or something you'd be out of a job and as one supervisor told us on our very first day, um, if you're unwell, you'll need to self-medicate because we need you here because productivity comes comes above everything else. And you're, it felt like you were kind of disposable. You were treated almost as there's a lot of talk about automation um, in, in jobs like uh, the Amazon warehouse. But you were effectively being treated to some extent like a, like a, a human robot already. And I mean you carried this handheld device which would monitor where you were in the warehouse which would monitor exactly how fast you were doing everything how much so-called idle time you were taking say if you went to the bathroom and amazon's also going down the route now of its patented uh centers which which workers would have attached to their to their hands so that amazon could monitor whether you where you were placing your hands to pick orders from the shelves whether that was the most scientific way to do it if you like it's very very similar to to some of the experiments uh, frederick taylor and his contemporaries did um, on workers back then because they didn't view workers as as fully human i mean frederick taylor himself said that a trained chimpanzee could do some of some of the jobs that he was uh doing experiments on workers that's how they viewed it was very much a class-based um 
is class prejudice. I mean, I think that penumbra is is kind of surrounds Amazon as well. Um, and with Uber, I think it's slightly different in that the, the, the kind of tech disruptors view themselves very much as a as a kind of a Randian elite. So, I mean, Travis Kalanick is famously a big fan of, of Ayn Rand, um, her kind of cod philosophy and, and her in her novels. And they use a very euphemistic language of kind of liberation, pseudo liberation um, around uh, your work. So when you go in for an induction, they bombard you with these kind of phrase, uh, words and phrases like flexibility, autonomy, uh, being your own boss. Um, if the wheels aren't turning, you aren't earning all this kind of nonsense. They layer that over exploitative relationship, which isn't new or like revolutionary at all. It's, it's a very old um, form of exploitation where, of, of sweated labor, essentially. And with Uber on that point, the wheels aren't uh, aren't turning, you're not earning. Um, I, in my head, often I've thought of the title of your book as hired six months undercover in the gig economy. And a lot of people talk about Uber and others as offering gig economy opportunities. And I think the current government are, are inclined to, if they hear zero hours, the phrase gig economy tends not to be too far behind if you listen to conservative politicians talking. And there's a sense in the gig economy that, you know, getting a gig's a good thing. You know, whether that's because you're going up on stage in a band or whether, you know, having your gig, you know, I've got my gig. It's quite a light-hearted, kind of easygoing word that conjures up positive notions. Mm -hmm. But in your experience, particularly thinking about Uber, how happy are people with the gigs on offer? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very important, the point about the language, because you mentioned um, it's been given the name gig economy, which sounds like something fun. You know, you're you're almost a rock star and you can go and play in a band and you can go on stage whenever you want or you can stay in bed and not bother. When the, the reality is quite far away from that. I mean, even at Amazon, we had there was the language um, that was used to blur certain distinctions, blur the material reality, if you like. So, I mean, just very briefly, we were when we were my first day at Amazon we were told that we weren't workers we weren't allowed to call each other workers we were associates and everyone was associate an associate so Jeff Bezos was an associate and so are you they actually said that we're one big happy family never mind that he earns you know millions and millions of pounds over the period where I'm earning like 20 quid over a morning or something you weren't allowed to call it a warehouse it was a fulfillment center you weren't fired you were released um, and you had similar things with Uber and there was the kind of any interaction you had with actual employees of Uber there was a veneer of kind of matiness so you were it was great you were you were going to be your own your own boss and stuff but then it very quickly as soon as any you questioned any of the tenets of what uber was was doing so that that veneer would kind of was slough off slough away so as an example when i went in for my induction uber it's like the final hurdle before you can go out on the road one of the supervisors was, was you know they talk us through how you use the app and one of the supervisors says you know you can't pick and choose what jobs you do which sets an alarm bell ringing straight away because you're supposed to be self-employed. You can't pick and choose what jobs you do. As soon as you you turn the app on, you signal to Uber that you're ready to work and you have to accept whatever we send you. That also meant you had to accept, because there's different types of Uber journeys. So there's Uber Pool, for example, there's regular Uber. Um, an Uber Pool, you'd, Uber would take 35% rather than 25%. So it doesn't necessarily pay as well as a, as a normal job. So as a driver, it would be in your interest. Um, often to turn down an uber pool job so drivers i expected would call it uber poor because uh, you'd, you'd make less money on it but uber said you know if you do that we'll put a temporary ban in place and possibly a permanent ban so you're banned from the app if you don't accept exactly what they send you you were told that it was off limits to talk about certain subjects with the passengers so we were told that you're not you shouldn't talk about politics religion or sport 
um, with a passenger, which is a cab driver. It's like, what the hell else are you, are you supposed to talk about? Your rating was closely monitored, like your star rating that customers leave. And if it fell below 4.4 stars, you would, be, first of all, be invited into the office for training, whatever that uh, entailed. But then if it, if it, it stayed below 4.4, which is still, you know, relatively, as someone who gets their book reviewed and 4.4 is, is classed as, a, as a, quite a high rating, you'd be, again, permanent bans put in place, potentially, if, if your rating stayed at that level. Um, and so just to kind of round off the point, in terms of did drivers like it? I mean, I put this question to other Uber drivers. So a, a guy called Aman, an Eritrean guy I interview in the book, he articulated it very well. But it came up a lot of times, the same point. I said to him, you know, why do you and your friends then drive for Uber if it's, you know, he, you're complaining about Uber, so why did you do it? And he's like, James, you don't understand some of the options that, that we have. Um, migrant workers in London, many of whom have worked in, have come from the back, back rooms of restaurants, for example, where you're sometimes off the grid, so you're not necessarily having your, your rights respect, respected there. It can be constrictive in terms of it's it's run by family members who... Uh, can get away with basically not paying you a minimum wage. You can't do a lot about it. They're kind of authority figures in the community um, or other private hire um, firms, which it's a notoriously bad trade for uh, workers' rights. And in with that, you have a, con- a human controller. So if they don't like you, you're not um, eating that week, as, as one of the cab drivers put it to me quite dramatically. You're not getting paid that week if they don't like your face, they don't like the sound of your voice. There's a lot of favoritism. So the algorithm uh, like cuts through that at least i mean i think the technology is good the problem is you you still have an exploitive relationship between the people who control the technology and the people who are controlled by it it's interesting you say that because in um a couple of episodes we've had recently one uh, on a book called new power where the author henry timms was talking about it's austin texas where they banned uber and lyft and then all of a sudden people kind of constructed their own community version of uber and lyft and it was working fantastically and every platform it was a platform co-op I think, and uh, there's probably quite a lot to learn from there. And equally on the technology itself, you know, I was we were talking to a chap called Chris Yu um, on the last episode on the future of public services, and he was saying people often say, if you're not paying, you're the product. And actually, he was challenging that, was saying, well, actually, no, the product is quite useful. The actual technology in itself is quite useful, but the the applications of it and the wider picture is sometimes a bit more blurred. I just want to pick up on that point you made about. I mean, I kind of imagine. I would characterise, perhaps inaccurately, what a man was saying as this job is slightly better in terms of my rights and conditions than being put to work in a kitchen where no one can see what's going on. I've got absolutely zero. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Flexibility. So it's one notch up the ladder, if you like, in terms of job quality. You spent some time working in a call centre, I think, for Churchill. Uh, Admiral. Admiral. The two are very easily, very easily <laughs> yeah, confused somewhere. in my head. And it felt to me like in the book that was one of the, that was one of the least worst experiences that you had. Um, was everybody there on a zero hours contract? No, I mean that was that was one of the the better employers because you did have uh, we had regular hours at, at Admiral, so you you know f- uh, well, minimum it's minimum wage that you can earn commission though, um, but you know whether you're coming or going because you have you have regular hours. So I think it was absolutely fair to contrast that. There were downsides to to that work. I mean, there was no again, there was no trade union there. So if management changed and kind of a, a new kind of more capricious management came in, less kind of benevolent, and decided to do away with the perks that you enjoyed, there's very little you could actually do about it. So you're still kind of subject to the goodwill of the higher ups, as it were. Um, but but it, it shouldn't be sniffed at. I mean, I, I didn't want to portray the call center as some as this you know dark satanic mill or something that it wasn't. I mean, it was. It was better than, than most of the other places I worked. All of the other places I worked, in fact. And I think one of the things that makes me reflect on one is that the minimum wage has gone up since you were, yeah, since you right. since you did the book. And I, at one point, you set out what your weekly budget looked like. And actually, at those levels, the increase in the minimum wage will make a difference. It will add probably an extra item to the budget line. And I think equally thinking about those really subtle differences between working in a restaurant kitchen to having the flexibility of being an Uber driver, to having f- fixed hours in a call centre. They're quite fine margins, if you like, but there are distinct differences on quality of life and knock-on. So actually, one of the things that that makes me feel is that, you know, if we are committed, which I think we should be committed, to trying to drive improvements in quality of life for people at the bottom of the chain, but there's no other way to put it, that you can make significant differences marginally. Yes, I mean, I think the the fact that there's a Tory government that's raised the minimum wage, I think that that leads some people to kind of almost turn like disregard it, turn their noses up at it. It doesn't matter, but it, I mean, it, when you're at the bottom, it actually it really does make a big difference. I think the law point, the things that you can do, the ways that you can use the law to improve that those situations. I mean, aside from the things like trade unions and worker self organisation, the law is particularly important and relevant to the point about Uber drivers and choice. So uh, if we went down, say, to somewhere like Barking or Ilford or somewhere like this where, um, or, or around this area where there are many new migrants coming in, often some of the poorest people in London, we could, we could you know, feasibly, conceivably find people who would work for, say, two, three pounds an hour. If we said that we've got this work cash in hand, we could find people to do that. One of the reasons you have the law is because it's not enough to just say, well, it's free choice because everyone, there's a choice that always happens within a context. There's always someone desperate enough 
uh, to do to do a job for a pittance, for hardly any money. So with with something like Uber, I don't think it's enough to say. Well, the you know the Eastern European or the African cab drivers I speak to say you know I'll say they like it or say it's great because yeah we we don't know how how desperate they are. That's why we have to push for workers' rights in some of those um, industries to protect uh, people who may not realise that they're being exploited because I think that's that is definitely a, a real issue if you're if you're from a poor poorer country you might think that you know three pounds an hour is is great but it, you're still being kind of you're still being exploited whether you realize it or not i think one of the things that really surprised me was and i suspect you may have been being careful to characterize them as errors but a lot of the agencies that were paying you and they were you know at amazon you were working for an agency you weren't working directly for amazon there were mistakes in the pay packet on a pretty regular basis and if I was a low-skilled worker with a difficulty understanding numeracy and literacy sometimes, particularly in a language that wasn't my own, I'm not sure I'd spot all of those mistakes. Uh, and I certainly listened to them and wondered how honest they were. Um, I also wondered who regulates that. Half the time I was working at Amazon for Transline, the agency, I was underpaid for half the time I was there. So one young woman I, in- I interviewed in the book, she was paid, it worked out at 62p an hour. And it took six weeks to get the money back over the Christmas period. And you can see what kind of like what a mess that would make of someone's life. She fortunately lived with her mum, so her mum kind of could subsidise it for a bit. But you could see how that could throw someone, you know, lose their flat or something. And then, then that ties in with how you see, have people like like Gary who end up like sleeping out on the streets because they've lost their the roof over their head. Um, but it relates with the underpayments again to if it's just incompetency. That again ties into them not really showing much concern for their for their workforce. If they can just do that, and then it takes six weeks to rectify, um, it seems like they don't really care about the well-being of, of the workforce. And it was happening repeatedly. And many of the workers there, as you, as you mentioned, were um, so most of the my co-workers were Romanian. And so I had to phone up um, on behalf of some of them to wrangle over what on earth is going on uh, with a payslip. And there, and some of the payslips I had, there were all these subtractions and additions where they'd screwed up the previous week's pay and you like i had trouble working out what the hell was going on whether i was being paid properly or not and i wasn't and for for those who you know don't understand necessarily the law um they're in a new country you know it would be the same for for me or you if we went and and worked abroad i'm sure um you don't necessarily want to rock the boat either because you'll feel like a guest in 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 a strange country and also a guest of the of the company um so yeah i mean i think the, the they very definitely um exploited that so they know that this is that people aren't going to kick off that people don't have recourse to any authority that can come down on on them like a ton of bricks for doing this um it didn't feel like the laws that exist were being enforced which is another thing entirely and i i think it's probably important to note that you know amazon are the example here but actually there's a lot there are a huge number of big companies that use big agencies and they're not exclusively technology companies and i've asked a lot of people who are sat in the chair that you're sat in at the moment you know, what do you think we should be doing to regulate technology companies to kind of uh, protect the quality of our democracy um, or ensure that we reap the benefits rather than the potential pitfalls of the kind of acceleration in the potential of technology in recent years? And actually, on this, it's it's the case that you know it's not tech regulation you need. It is, as you say, is to ensure that laws are enforced and so on. And I think that's probably a conversation for another day and probably another podcast. I also wanted to ask you, James, how... In your view, from what you saw, how likely is it that the jobs you were doing will be automated within the next decade or so? 
I'd say it's it's un- quite unlikely. I mean, I think technology will be used more and more to control the human beings who are doing those jobs. Um, I think with a distribution distribution center, I think it would be very hard to automate the. You can you can do it cheaply enough with cheap labor. I think um, I struggle to see labor being priced like, out of the equation that that much. I mean, I think technology. Amazon, as I mentioned, Amazon has have patented the technology to control workers to to improve their productivity even more. I think that's the route in the short term, at least, that it's likely to to move towards. I mean, the point about regulating technology as well is, I mean, like a lot of the things that come up in around employment and technology is the tech is is like a neutral entity. Concepts like flexibility are a neutral entity. The point is flexibility for whom? Um, technology, which who is it benefiting? You have an Uber app um, where it hooks me up in theory with someone who needs a lift i have a car i have a license someone needs a lift we we kind of hook up but someone someone else is creaming off 25 percent of my fare every time can we not conceivably use a technology like that where the money that goes back into it what you need is a wikipedia type system where the technology is upgraded so when you know when a road disappears and a new road's built someone inputs that into the into the system into the algorithm but it's i don't see why you need to cream 25 percent off of of the driver's the driver's fare each time the technology exists i think there can be some alternative where that 25 percent is either but in a really basic way split between the, the passenger and the driver so the driver can have higher wages and you still get a cheap fare and the technology is managed collectively so this is an important point as well so that the data isn't controlled by the, the state which would be probably even worse than companies controlling it and but it's also not controlled by a company i'm not sure how you would do that you hear you would do that in practice that's another that would take as much work as my book uh, to come up with with that but there doesn't seem beyond the realms of possibility that you could have a kind of collectively owned service like uber where but but where there were safeguards on the on the data so it didn't no one power um accumulated all the data and then could use that and there were times in the book where you were butting up against government inefficiency so i i think of when you were in blackpool and you were waiting for your dbs to come through were there any other experiences you had of kind of slow or ineffective government i mean blackpool in particular in two respects uh, one because i waited for had to wait for a dbs check which is like the police record check to check you haven't got a criminal record when you're working with vulnerable people and i had to wait that's basically down to austerity really so police forces are overstretched if you have a local authority like the Met, where because I'd lived in London, they had to do it. They're overstretched and they have a like backlog of, of DBS cases, sometimes going back months. There were stories in the newspaper because when it was happening to me, I, I started to read about it. And there were stories of people waiting up to six months, so you're in limbo. You've got a job, you can't sign back on the dole, but you, you're not getting any wages. You just got to wait it, wait it out for months sometimes. So that was kind of a, a story of, of austerity. Um, similarly, I mean the, the care sector itself in Blackpool. One of the reasons why I ended up and many other care workers end up working for companies who do put you on a zero hours contract, who do pay you the minimum wage, uh, why there's like a 25% turnover in the sector each year. And the typical job is 15%, so it's far, far higher. This is going on partly because of uh, cuts to government, local government budgets. So when the local authority looks at care in, say, say the north, north shore of Blackpool, what they'll do is they'll put out a is it called a tendering process where they put out where companies bid for the yeah for the for the for the contracts and because the council's stretched for money it it tends to give the contract to the company which promises to to do all this stuff for the for the lowest cost uh which that tends to mean minimum wage zero hours contracts minimal training you know four days training and then you're out on the job 
Um, so, so cuts coming from central government have a direct impact on when you read the horror story in in the Daily Mail or whatever about this uh, neglect in a care home or neglect uh, from home care work. It, it relates directly to, to some of the austerity policies we've seen in, in recent years. So I guess whether whether or not the the speed at which DBS checks in particular can be executed is is purely at the root of austerity. I mean, there's a bit of me that in my brain thinks, well, you know, government is a very bu- bureaucratic beast. There's a lot of paper involved. There's probably other inefficiencies as well. But it does strike me that that is somewhere where there's potential for technology to perhaps provide a quicker fix um, in terms of making sure that people can get quick clearance um, rather than having to have a kind of level of manual time spent that you know, perhaps at the moment the, man- the manual time needs to be spent in a way that it doesn't have to be. Yeah, I mean, there's a, I don't want to go down the road of just blaming everything on like the cuts. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that would be a bit crude. But I, I mean, the DBS point, yeah, there's always going to be a, a degree of bureaucracy in these things that's going to take time, that's going to take manpower, it's going to take, going to accumulate, create lots of paperwork. But I mean, the, the backlog of DBS had gone up kind of exponentially on kind of a decade before when there were more, where there was someone who could sit at a desk in the station and just go through it. It's, it's a relatively simple process, checking whether someone's got a criminal record and, and sending it off. And that is why I wonder if it's something that, you know, where we're thinking about how you can use technology to improve quality yeah. of government and politics, maybe that there is an opportunity there. And, and also in, in the care sector itself. So, I mean, some of the developments in terms of uh, f- having a face-to-face chat with your your GP through through the use of uh, mobile phone technology, computer technology, I think that's that's great, and it would be really great for many older people who are housebound who may need you know you may need expert opinion relatively quickly, and it gives you kind of confidence that even in your own home, the kind of best parts of the of the welfare state are accessible to you. Um, it's not you know you, you don't have to go to and wait like six hours in in A and E or something. But I would ju- I would also just say that. It's not a solution to well-funded care and a kind of happy workforce, which which has the time to actually spend time with the old with the people you're looking after. Because one of the problems with uh, like the profit motive in care is that you can't monetize some of the benefits that the, the people you're looking after derive from it. So many times you are the only person some of them would see all day. So you visit them in the morning, you visit them uh, in in the evening, and they wouldn't see anyone else in, in the entire day. So. Yes, I mean you have to do your your set jobs, kind of get them out of bed, give them bre- make them breakfast, take them to the bathroom, give them their medication. But then a, a huge part of it is setting aside fifteen minutes to have a chat, to to just chat about how they are. But it's very hard to monetize those those kinds of things, and you can't kind of short circuit that and and do away with it through just technology. There's there ha- there's always that human aspect, the social value, um, which which it's hard to kind of put on a balance sheet if you're a profit making company. I'm going to uh, do one last plug for a different podcast episode, and then I'm going to ask you one last question, James. So episode two of Government vs. Robots is called A Doctor on Your Wrist, and it's all about how technology can be used to improve healthcare, and particularly in the care sector. So anybody thinking about that over the last couple of minutes might want to wind back to episode two if they've not got that far in their Government vs. Robots listening. Um, My last question is usually a twist on a theme, and um, I've often asked people, particularly working in public service, you know, what are the characteristics they see that can drive positive change in public life? But uh, the question I want to ask you is, of all of the people you encountered when you're writing your book and all of the characteristics that you saw them demonstrate, and I'm a big believer in the Bertrand Russell point about the fallacy of believing in the superior virtue of the oppressed, but 
Can you share perhaps anything you learned from the people that you worked with that you are keeping in mind that you think it is worth keeping in mind um, if you're trying to pursue kind of positive change? I mean, I suppose it's the, the idea of, especially when I was in, when I spent a lot of time in South Wales valleys and um, looking at the present and the kind of some of the real social problems there. So, like Blano Gwent, you've got, I think it was one in six people on antidepressants in, in 2013. And it's basically down to a loss of work. A kind of culture has been, was kind of destroyed once when industry was wound down. And the sense of kind of solidarity that there is between kind of, it's, it's almost a bit of a cliche now, but the idea of, you know, coming together, you can, you can stand against the kind of powers that are acting upon you. And it's really important to have those like grassroots kind of areas of democracy um, where you can challenge what seems like invisible power. So if you're if you live in a community which has been devastated by deindustrialization, you can feel like as a person in the world, as an actor in the world, you're just acted upon. So you don't have any kind of um, you want to take back control. I mean, what a great slogan that was that really taps into that. Um, And I think the power of solidarity, the power of coming together, self-organization, we've kind of forgotten how important that was. And I think it's it's really important not just for like, clawing back material um, benefit from from your employer. I mean that's the, on the most basic level things like trade unions, but also giving you a sense of of dignity, of identity, of self respect, of acting on the world uh, rather than just being um, acted upon by forces that are kind of outside outside of your control. Before I start opining on the trade unions movement's apparent withdrawal from the private sector, I'm going to uh, draw things to an end and say. Thanks very much for joining me here. I know uh, we're in the week when uh, a lot of the train timetables changed in London and it was a bit of a mission for you uh, from deepest south London. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, James. So that's it from Government versus the Robots this week. I hope you found that thought-provoking. In the next few weeks, you'll be pleased to hear we've got some female voices back on the show. We'll be talking to the fact-checking charity Full Fact and we'll also be finding out a bit more about the potential of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in more detail than we've managed before. So keep your ears open for that. Thanks as ever to Sky Redman for her help with the editing and production. And as always, you can get in touch with us at govt underscore vs underscore robots. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.